welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We've thus far learned that there is an appointed time for every human event under heaven, and that we are to use our time on earth to rejoice, to do good, and to fear God. Uh, Today we're going to discover one of the reasons why we are to revere God, Uh, and I'll begin by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Uh, We'll see, there is an appointed time for judgment, and God's justice is a major theme that will now develop in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, throughout Ecclesiastes going forward, when will we finally see justice on earth, per Solomon? Follow along as I read, starting in verse 16, and we'll find the answer to that question. Solomon writes, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. And there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Then I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on, their side, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still living. But better off than them both is the one who never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Wow. (laughs) This preacher, King Solomon, he has seen on earth that there is injustice. There's injustice. I I don't think any of us here would argue against that. Uh, It's not that we never get to observe any facet uh, or any characteristic of some justice, but this is an acknowledgement how the heart of man is incredibly cruel, it can be wicked, Uh, it does not matter their creed, their skin color, their nation of origin. Unregenerate man is always seeking an advantage over others, always seeking an advantage at the expense of others, and life just becomes a relentless struggle, doesn't it? In fact, 
Our passage next Sunday is going to talk about rivalry. Unlike some places in scriptures, there's no need to really identify the exact source of unrighteousness and oppression that provokes Solomon to alarm in order to interpret this passage. The fallen state of humanity is perpetually unjust. I don't, I don't know anyone who really uh, prefers losing. It is a dog-eat-dog world out there. Uh, some of the first words that any child learns to utter are on the playground. You know what they are? But the other kids didn't play fair, right? They didn't play fair. And a lot of times that it makes us really upset uh, is the fact that we didn't figure out how to cheat better than they did. We're just mad because we lost. It starts with hide-and-seek, folks, early on, when, so, when the person who is supposed to be counting is peeking through their fingers. They're cheating. They're cheating, right? <laughs> Our nature is sick. It really is. From birth, we have a sinful nature. And as we age, we get better at it and better at it uh, until we see that it is the cyclist who dopes on the Tour de France who becomes a millionaire. That's the one who wins. And dishonesty and corruption are skills that are profitable everywhere under the sun. Translates into business, government, relationships. Pretty much pollutes everything that we touch. Everything that man touch is polluted by unrighteousness. Solomon lamented, if you remember back in chapter 1, saying, What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be accounted for. You know, the heart of man is wicked, and, and the road that leads to eternal life is narrow. It is narrow. Few find it, says Christ. So true Christians are going to be outnumbered. We are going to be outnumbered in this world. Uh, Do you think we're going to be able to find a cure for all injustice during our lifetime? Doesn't look good, does it? I'm not questioning today whether Christians or, or other moralized pagans can make a difference for things that are within our sphere of control. Uh, in a limited way, we surely can. But is fallen man going to be able to establish reliable, uniform justice in the world? Folks, it just isn't going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. Two places of injustice that really disturb Solomon in this passage, appear to be two institutions that that we ourselves also uh, want to be able to revere as sacrosanct. They are the court of law and the house of God. Many theologians believe these are the very institutions that, that this preacher has in mind in verse 16. He writes, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun, that means on earth, what is observable, that in the place of justice... There's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. The place where justice should be found is the court system. It should be just. The place of righteousness, or where righteousness should dwell, is the temple of God. That Solomon recently completed. He himself built it. And just as during the life of Christ... 
even under the reign of Solomon centuries earlier, it was dominated by the elite. Dominated by them. And in Solomon's day, both are already corrupt. And in those places reigned wickedness. Think about that. The term we translate as wickedness, it's very broad. It, it, it involves every type of evil and iniquity, guilt, violence, vengeance. All ethical dealings are in view. And, and we, this will prove that not much will improve over a thousand years between the time of Solomon until the spotless Lamb of God was handed over to be crucified on a cross by evil men. Not much change, did there? In these places, uh, the court system and in the, uh, the trials of Christ and also in the house of God, not much had changed. Evil still reigned. The human race, when, when it's left to its own nature, just, just never evolves. Never evolves to do good. Never gets better over the centuries. Solomon sees it. It's one of the reasons he's so disconcerted. The reformer, uh, Martin Luther, makes this comment about verse 16. He says, The preacher is not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected. That's what he really laments. There's just no fixing this. Here's what struck me hardest this week as I thought about this. This entire dilemma of institutionalized evil really, 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 really rocked my world. Solomon is king, ruler over all Israel, right? He's the most wise. He's the most revered. He's the most powerful man alive during his era. He's also the supreme monarch ruling from the Davidic throne. Even with all of his wisdom and sovereign power in Israel, even he can't fix it. Think about that. Should we then actually believe that passing any bill by Congress, especially in this Congress, would be an effort to establish true justice. Do, do we really believe that? You know, people, they who defend the right to murder babies and try to erase God's own created distinction between male and female, who endorse sexual acts that go against nature, They're going to right the wrongs in America. They're going to finally establish true justice on earth. Think about that. Think about that. I sent out an email this week, prayer email with an attachment from Reverend Franklin Graham. I hope you had a chance to read it about uh, the Equality Act that is proposed right now. About establishing, they say, equality. Congress is trying to pass it currently. Uh, We don't know what it would look like in its final form, but in its current form, it's bad news. 
It is, its whole intent of the Equality Act is to silence opposing views. Silence opposing views. They want to force Christians to teach our children their sick and demented ways. That's what they want to do. They want to force us to teach our children their sick ways. Folks, the people in power are evil. They are evil. When it comes to those currently into control and those who flock to them, have you ever asked yourself, what kind of sick people elect these sick people? Have you ever thought about that? It, it, it baffles the mind what is going on. Baffles the mind. Do you think during the period when Ecclesiastes was written that they didn't have these sick people back then? Oh, they did. They, they did. Uh, the people of Israel were all perfectly holy. No, 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 no. Said no prophet of God ever. <laughs> the majority of Israel, too, was sick, but thanks to the law of God and their theocratic form of government based on the law of God, Israel hadn't enjoyed the freedom yet to express all forms of debauchery in the ways that Sodom and Gomorrah and America have. From whom God had to, quote Second Peter 2.8, rescue righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. There's nothing new, is it? There's nothing new. Israel had not yet descended to the depravity of Sodom or America, but Solomon had a front row seat. He saw the heart of man. He saw wickedness and corruption. And that term, oppression, you're going to progress to that in, in chapter 4 and verse 1. That word oppression means an, an act of subjugating others, oppressing others, suppressing others, either by an act of deceit or by extortion or by exploitation or by cruel force. That's what that word oppression means, subjugating others. We'll see that when oppression occurs, uh, those who are in power subjugate those who do not have power. Throughout the history of man, this, this is just how sick man is. It, it is truly sad. Have acts of oppression ever stopped? There ever been a great pause in all of this? You know, whether it was Edward the Longshanks over Scotland or Great Britain over America. Have you ever read the Declaration of Independence and the charges that were against the, the throne of the king there? The awful acts. We weren't talking about tea. Those who wrote it were being suppressed in America. Everyone should read that. Or nations like Portugal and Spain and America... England, many others who were buying slaves, many African nations who were selling those slaves. How about Germany and the Holocaust, the oppression that was done among men? Has mankind over the centuries found a solution to this? Is there any solution? Will humanity find a solution for this? Humanity isn't going to find a solution. This fallen race is not going to solve injustice 
and oppression. You know, man's attempts to, to correct injustice very often result in more injustice. Somebody else who's uninvolved or, or innocent of the situation actually ends up the one who was hurt in the process. Then man dares to stand before God and men and say, we've got justice. Now who's going to straighten all this out? Is there anybody who can straighten all this out? Well, Solomon says, I'm going to tell you who's going to straighten it all out. There is a time for justice. In verse 17, Solomon says, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. There is a time to be born. There is a time to die. There's going to be a time for justice. There's going to be a time of judgment. When does it come? When does it come? Verse 17, by the way, is eschatological, meaning looking in the future. It's a judgment of both the righteous man and the wicked man. So we're looking here at the judgment of God. Hebrews 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Ultimate justice will be established, says Solomon, after we all die. After we all die. Death becomes a big theme, by the way, in the following verses. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. Death is a big theme now for Solomon. But before we look at those verses uh, 18 to 21, Christians must know that the wrath of God's judgment will never touch God's elect. It will never touch true Christians. For Hebrews continues. Hebrews 9.27, it is allotted for man to die once and then comes judgment. Then it says, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Well, that's good news. That's really good news. Christ's first appearing, we refer to it as the first advent, occurred in Bethlehem. All right, follow me. Christ's second appearing, referred to as the second advent, also referred in the Greek to a word you should know called the parousia. Uh, Christ's second appearing, that will be a day of judgment. It's going to be a day of judgment for the damned. It is going to be a day of salvation for those who fear God, for those who eagerly await Jesus' return. Hebrews says, without reference to sin. Is that awesome or what? This is what Christians are doing right now. We're eagerly awaiting Christ's return. And for Christians, there's nothing to fear in this parousia of Christ. Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. God's justice... On behalf of Christians, it is satisfied at the cross. It is satisfied when God punished His own Son for our sins. Jesus suffered. He bled. He died on the cross. So justice for our sins, it's been served. Justice has been served. God is just. Sin will always be punished. So when Jesus appears the second time, there's not going to be any reference to our sin. Isn't that great? 
For Psalm 103 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Christians don't fear Christ's second appearing. For the damned who do not believe in the Lord Jesus and refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus, uh, that's not going to be a pleasant day. It's really not going to be a pleasant day. Uh, They have not been spared from God's wrath. Their sin has not been punished for them. It's a day of God's judgment. They're going to be punished for their own sin. We saw a picture of this day during our scripture reading from First Thessalonians, uh, excuse me, Second Thessalonians, chapter one. But in First Thessalonians, uh, excuse me, yeah, Second Thessalonians, chapter one, the apostle Paul commends that church in Thessalonica for their quote perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. It's interesting in First Thessalonians chapter 1, see this in verse 6, Paul acknowledges that like the apostles, these Thessalonians had received the word in much tribulation. Thessalonians, those Thessalonians, had received the word in much tribulation. Folks, this life on earth for Christians can bring much tribulation. Much suffering, much persecution. For some of us, it's relatively minor. Some it's relatively minor. For others, tribulation has throughout the history of the church introduced Christians to grotesque forms of martyrdom. You know that, right? Throughout the centuries, Christians have suffered grotesquely at the hands of sinful men. Um, Thankfully, by God's grace, Americans thus far, have not, been, uh, not had to face the sword as have some Christians in North Korea, in Sri Lanka, in Algeria, in Qatar, many other locations. So when Christians suffer oppression and tribulation, says Paul, it's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. You're suffering for the kingdom. They're enduring tribulation for the word. So Christians have always endured religious persecution. That is unjust. Who's going to bring the retribution? Who's going to relieve uh, the suffering of Christians? Well, fortunately, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 continues to tell us uh, when God's justice and when our relief will ultimately come. Paul writes in verse 6, For after all, it is... Only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give give to you relief who are afflicted, and to us as well, says Paul. When's that going to be? Verse 7 is crystal clear. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints 
on that day to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. This day, if you, if you continue into Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, continue reading, it's the parousia. It's also called, referred to in Second Thessalonians 2 as the day of the Lord. And then chapter 2 describes how this day of God's justice climaxes when the man of lawlessness is revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Folks, it's going to be finished. In embryonic form, King Solomon has seen this day. He looks forward to this day. Is justice going to be established on earth before then? Folks, it's not that we're going to entirely or should entirely abandon reforms. We should strive for reforms. We should defend our constitutional freedoms from being encroached upon. That's a different passage for a different sermon, a different text, and a different day. But what is important to see is Solomon remained very pessimistic towards the motives of men. Optimistic to the Lord who is our only true hope. And optimism in Christ's church is in the gospel that regenerates the hearts of men, not in Washington, D.C. They can't fix hearts. Only God, by His Holy Spirit, can fix hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate a man uh, to righteousness and to worship Christ. Permanent relief from our afflictions and our tribulations, will not precede the day of the Lord. It's really, I think, think about it. I think it's demeaning. In a sense, or discrediting in a way to our brethren who are in Christ around the globe. When Americans suggest Christians should never suffer tribulation on earth, Many Christians over the centuries have continued to be martyred in the most grotesque fashions all around the globe. And Christians in America have been falsely taught that we'll never have to worry about facing persecution or tribulation. Folks, some of us may well join those martyrs. My complete hope rests in Christ appearing... When the Son of God will judge and rule over men, He will establish justice. He will rule on earth. And in Revelation chapter 6, we hear the cry of the voice of the martyrs. This is their cry. The souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? holy and true. Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would also be completed. Just a little while longer. A little while longer. Rest. But unless the day of the Lord comes first, 
we're all going to die. Every single one of us. Solomon writes in verse 18, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. And there's no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. Now obviously, Solomon isn't asserting that man has no advantage over beast spiritually. He actually differentiates man from beast in the very next verse, alright? What Solomon is saying is that man has no advantage over beasts physically concerning the grave. The test God has given is His forcing us to watch how everything that has breath always dies. Everything. And Solomon's talking about the reality and the finality of physical death. Both man and beast return to the ground, as God told Adam, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Man and beast both return to the ground. However, in verse 21, the breath, literally in the Hebrew, that is spirit. They translate it breath so we can differentiate. But the breath of man goes upward to God, and while and heaven, while the breath of oh, excuse me, the breath of man goes upward to God in heaven, while the breath of spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth. When asking who knows this, the context of verse 16 assures us, well, nobody under the sun. Nobody under the sun who's alive and breathing today has direct personal knowledge. They haven't, they, where the Spirit goes, they haven't seen this. But by divine revelation, Solomon knows what's happening. The Spirit of man goes up to meet the, his Maker in heaven, while the Spirit of beast goes downward into the earth. Folks, this, this indicates an infinite disparity between those destinations. One goes up, the other goes down. How do I know that a reunion with God is what Solomon has in view here? It's because he'll say it again later in chapter 12, verse 7. The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. That's where the Spirit returns for man. So your breath or your spirit ascends to God for judgment. The breath or spirit of the beast who lovingly offers him or herself on our barbecue for our enjoyment, his or her spirit returns to the earth. It ceases. It ceases. What about Fluffy? Well, Fluffy's spirit does not go to be with God. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Fluffy spirit goes to join all the cattle, all the beasts, all of the chicken and fish and other delicious farm animals that we consume. All beasts descend to the earth after they die. Folks, the humanization and the deification of pets, that's an abhorrence to God. Do we recognize that? We, we never find any permission in Scripture 
to love animals. There's no permission given for that. We never see any concern expressed in the Bible about the eternal destiny of pets. There's no concern. Therefore, we waste no concern on their eternal destiny. It's not what we worry about is what I mean. Animals are a separate realm of creature made by God for our use and for our enjoyment and to display His glory. He's created everything, and it's all good, but we rule over them. We do not bow down before them, unless it is to say grace before we consume them. <laughs> let's, let's really get real here. Um, or unless you're picking up their stuff, which is good, because I don't want their stuff on my lawn. I guess then you have to bow down to pick it up. The gospel of Jesus Christ is only concerned about the eternal destiny of the souls of men and women who are created in the image of God. Folks, we never want to go down that Romans 1 route where we are humanizing, deifying pets. They're not as important as we make them out. I don't avoid... Uh, eating those things which I think First Timothy 4 says that we are to gratefully share or thankfully share all types of foods. I don't eat a tofu or an impossible whopper to save them. If you want to eat it because it's good, that's okay. But the humanization of animals, it is an egregious sin, folks. An egregious sin. I'm sorry. That has to be shared. It is out of control completely out of control. But we do share this in common with them. Short of Christ's return, we all, like animals, will all wind up dead. We'll all wind up dead. Knowing this is our end, Solomon's advice remains consistent in verse 22. He says, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. For that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Meaning, we don't get a do-over. We don't get to come back and try again. After, after the buzzer sounds in the fourth quarter, it's done. There's no, there no comeback. The phrase, nothing better, is identical language as seen in chapter 2 and verse 24, where there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Also in verse Uh, In chapter 3 and verse 12, Solomon writes, There is nothing better than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all of his labor. It is the gift of God. And here again in verse 22, Nothing better than that a man should be happy in his work activities. Your translation might say activities, it might say work means diversity of work, laborious work. There's nothing better, for that is man's lot. It means that is our portion. Really, I think literally it means inheritance. That's what we're given. That's our portion. That's our lot. And it is a gift from God. Work is a gift from God. We touched on that a couple weeks ago. 
For a chapter and a half, folks, the king has been trying to communicate to us a crystal clear message. It's this. Life is short, and then you die. At times, it will cause us deep despair. We will experience times and seasons that bring both ups and downs, and there will certainly arise people who will abuse their power and their authority to oppress and subjugate we who are righteous. Knowing all of this then, how does Solomon say again and again we should live? I said this last week and I'll say it again because Solomon has said it. Life is best when it's kept simple. Here on earth under the sun, there's nothing better than to work and to enjoy the fruits of your labor. And we should enjoy life as much as possible and be happy because life is good, folks. Life is really good. You should go out and buy one of those t-shirts that says life is good. That guy's trying to make a buck too. He's trying to enjoy life. Help him out. My old pastor writes this theological brilliance here. Don't let what you can't understand or control destroy what you can enjoy. Go eat some rocky road. Find some good friends and read a good book. Go catch a baseball game. Choose a beautiful afternoon. Grab your friends and go sit in the stands. Get a cold drink and a Snickers. And enjoy the game because we're all going to die someday. Enjoy life. Here's a summary of Solomon's wisdom right here. I'm going to show it to you. Get yourself a banana split at Joy's Ice Cream. Folks... That is actual size. I'm not kidding. (laughs) It's wonderful. Any working man can enjoy these wonderful, simple things in life. Great stuff. Enjoy what you have. Life is too short to worry about what we can't control. Just a little more and we're done. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Solomon reiterates virtually the same point, uh, but, but with greater intensity. Uh, this is about those who are really suffering. I, I decided I, I could either fold these verses into this week or preach the identical sermon next week. Really. I'll finish today. Solomon says, Then I looked again. See how he's again repeating? Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. But they, again speaking of the oppressed, had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who had never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Tom Nelson writes, I don't like that the bad guys hurt the good guys. I think we should work as hard as we can for justice. But the reality is is that we still have men like Stalin and Hitler. And we've got genocide going on in a half dozen countries right now. And it's going to keep happening as long as we are alive on this earth. The oppressors have the power. And the oppressed have no one to comfort them. It's sad. But injustice will continue. But God... 
doesn't judge all sins instantaneously. And for that, I am very thankful. Very thankful. Especially before I trusted Christ. Think about it. If God judged sin right away, when that person rudely cuts you off on the road, He'd steer them right into a tree. And then He'd steer you right in the tree if you cursed at them, right? Immediate justice. That's what we're talking about. Would anybody want immediate justice from God? No. We'd all be walking around in shell shock if God judged every sin immediately. We'd just be waiting for the next shoe to drop. It's like, oh, what did I do wrong now? That's not the way God works. He gives a period of grace, of reconciliation to Him through His Son. Very gracious. God is very loving and generous. Instantaneous justice for every sin we commit can never work. Sometimes the good guys lose. And sometimes the bad guys win. It's the way it is. Better would be, says Solomon, someone who never existed, never had to witness all the evil that is under the sun. It really would be good to not ever have to say that. But if that were the case, you'd never get to see the magnificence of the of the Christ on the glorious day of His appearing when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Wouldn't want to miss that. Don't worry, folks. Some things are going to be hard. But Jesus is coming. In the meantime, have yourself some cake at the lunch that follows. As I invite the men to come forward, we'll distribute the Lord's Supper.